So welcome to this episode of Cloud and Clear, where I have a very, very special guest, a leader I've known for an extremely long amount of time. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, please welcome the CEO of Gainsight, Nick Meta. Tony, it's awesome to see you. And I totally remember meeting you like a decade plus ago. So it's good to see you again. Decade plus. I've, I've, I've uh, known you and been following your career for a decade plus, man. I'm just, first of all, really, really proud of you. Oh, thanks, man. Same to you. Uh, the live office days seemed like an eternity away, but even then, you know, you were kind of far ahead of whatever was going on at that time, which was solving a major, major problem in the email space, in the Microsoft ecosystem where we played, and that's how we got to know each other. Right. And then uh, the semantic deal. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, but, but as opposed to me telling your story, uh, I love all of our listeners to learn about my guest's career and trajectory and how they landed where they are today. So do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown on, on those highlights? Sure. I'll, I'll give you the, the summary so far. Hopefully there's a lot more to go. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. Um, so uh, grew up in the East Coast. I live in California now, but grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, as as uh, we were having some fun about me being a, a crazy Steeler fan and uh, your podcast coordinator, coordinator being a, a Patriots fan. So we'll, we'll put that put that off to the side. I'm glad right. the podcast didn't come to an end right then and there. Exactly. It almost ended right there. <laughs> so my dad actually, so probably a common connection. So I grew up around business. My dad was an entrepreneur. Uh, business person. He was a, an executive at some computer companies in the 70s and 80s. And then he ran a small um, reseller in Pittsburgh. Um, they were kind of reselling and installing you know, hardware and Novell networks, things that most people on the podcast have no idea what those are. But you and I, you and I probably remember those. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, and I grew up around computers. And so I was always kind of into technology. My Being a good Indian American kid, my mom definitely wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, but, um, I, I did not do that. I, I, I humored her for a little bit. I did a bachelor's in biochemistry, but I think I was just trying to appease my mom, <laughs> but, um, my, my, um, my love was technology. And I, I met a, um, uh, a classmate in undergrad and we were both in like computer science together. And we basically were like programming together. And then he had this idea, uh, this is in the late nineties to do a startup where he was a big golfer. My classmate was a golfer. And he said, let's start a company. We sell golf clubs over the web. Um, and so we, the, our, my first job was we basically started a company in college, uh, e-commerce company called chipshot.com. You can actually Google it and there's still a commercial online. You can watch, it's pretty funny. <laughs> and um, and we basically started this business in our dorm rooms and then it ended up actually growing a lot. And we uh, turned down all of the normal post-college job offers. I was going to go work in investment banking. My friend was going to be a consultant. We said, no, let's go do this startup. We moved to California where my my friend's parents lived in, in uh, Saratoga, which is basically near San Jose lived in his parents' house, worked out of the garage, ran the startup, and then got into this maelstrom of the dot-com that, you know, some of you lived through listing and some of you Googled it uh, either way. Uh, the dot-com, you know, kind of uh, catapulted a lot of uh, startups into a world of craziness. Our craziness was we ended up raising a lot of money from Sequoia Capital, a big VC firm. We almost went public in 2000. I was 21 years old and we were calculating the millions. And then we, uh, and then, but unfortunately we missed the IPO window and we eventually sold it, but it was such a kind of crash of the market that it wasn't a big financial outcome. But it was a lot of fun along the way and kind of got me my first entrepreneurial, kind of both the, the positives and, and some of these scars as well. 
And then I, um, I, I decided I had to go get it. At that point, I had to go get a real job because I hadn't worked for anyone at that point. <laughs> Worst thing you can do in, just, in the beginning of your career is, not, is start your own company because then you can never work for anyone else. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I worked at, uh, uh, at a company called Veritas, which t- Tony probably knows. It was a, um, a on-premise software company at the time. They basically made software for the exciting world of backup which is basically yeah. you use your data and making sure you have a backup. That's what's, the, what's backup, Nick? Some of, the, some of our audience are like, what's backup? I know, exactly. That's the thing we had to do before the cloud. So uh, <laughs> Veritas is actually still around and they're still a you know, good business. I started as a product manager. I was very customer-centric and sales-centric and rose up and became a GM of a division at Veritas, which is all about kind of data archival, archiving data for legal and compliance purposes, which got me into the world of email I ran that. Uh, we ended up getting bought by Symantec. Uh, Veritas got bought by Symantec, and then I um, and then I. But I, my dad was an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I was kind of working in this large company, enjoying it, but realizing I wasn't really kind of pursuing my dream. And so I left in 2007. Got hired to run um, a cloud company, my first SaaS business, Live Office, where Tony and I met, and we were doing a cloud-based version of kind of what I was doing with my old product at Veritas. So I kind of knew the space pretty well. And we grew that and we eventually sold that company actually back to Symantec, the place I was at before. And in that process, you know, running that company, one of the interesting learnings was, you know, unlike my old business at Veritas, where we would sell a customer, they'd install the software and, you know, they pay us all up front in this live office business. I would have to make sure they kept getting value because they could leave us at any time. It was actually mostly month to month contracts. And so I, as a CEO of this company, I wasn't just focused on like selling the product or building the product. I spent a lot of my time on like, who are our customers? Are they using the product? Well, are they, are they happy? Are they going to stay with us? Things that you think about, I'm sure all the time. And that, as we know now is called customer success. Like I remember there was a day when I was looking at all of our systems for our business. This is like 2009 and seeing, oh, we had systems to sell our customers and to market to them. We had systems to bill our customers but we had no system to manage our existing customers, no to understand which ones are healthy, to make sure they're getting value. And so I was surprised nobody had solved that problem. Anyways, we sold the company, took some time off, and um, you know we launched Gainsight in 2013. Um, so that's about uh, almost eight years ago, seven and a half years ago now. And um, obviously, when we started, it was um, you know customer success, as we'll talk about, was a small thing. And now it's really starting to take off and we can document the history a little bit. All right. So the the, the idea behind uh, what is now commonly called as customer success really came from the very early days of being in SaaS with live office. Yeah, that's right. I saw the problem and we, and I wasn't the only one a lot as you know, Tony, you and I talked about like, how did customer success get started? You know, we didn't start the concept, you know, really all of the early pioneers of the cloud we had the same realization, which was, uh-oh, we just sold a customer and our business model doesn't mean they haven't committed all their money up front. And I don't have any way to make sure they're going to use it and get value. And so the first company uh, in our own history that did this way back when was Salesforce, where they basically, you know, had these CSMs in the kind of mid 2000s who were responsible after the sale for making sure that you deployed Salesforce and you're using it so that you renew with it, right? And so that concept, when we launched Gainsight in 2013, there was probably about 500 CSMs in the whole world, like literally yeah. in our world. And obviously that's not a great way to build a business if you have 500 people that you can sell to. So we spent the early days of Gainsight trying to take it from this small concept to then being this company, this industry-wide movement. 
And promise right. eight years later, that now pretty much every tech company, including like, you know, great companies like Google that you work with, they all have customer success teams now because they all realize the job isn't done at the sale. The job is just started at the sale. You have so much more to do, you know, and, and we, as you know, Tony, we've done a lot of work at Gainsight, not just building software to help with this, but trying to evangelize the concept. We do a big conference called Pulse every year. And this yeah. year we did it online. We had 23,000 people there. We've written a number of books on the topic. I'll, I'll, I'll shamelessly promote one customer success economy, which just came out all about this idea. So. All right. So, I mean, I think that that's why it feels like from the outside, like Gainsight invented customer success. It just feels like that, honestly, from the, it's the thought leadership, it's the evangelizing of the concept. And I think all great companies do this, by the way. It's like they have a product that solves a problem, but they want to solve the problem for everybody, regardless of what product people end up using, right? Because it's totally. all about moving the whole movement uh, forward, like the paradigm shift forward. And I've noticed that clearly. And, you know, you guys also do it a certain way. And I think that comes from you. On the, on the at the helm, you do with humor, you do with music, um, <laughs> so, so it's very um, it's very memorable uh, content. So kudos to you for that as well. Thanks, I appreciate that. What I love about the cloud economy, by the way, I'm like tons of things, but when when software companies, SaaS companies realize that, uh, you know, the revenue is not to be taken for granted. Right, customers cannot be taken for granted. It's like it changes all the behavior totally within not only the vendor, but the partners like us who work in that ecosystem. It's like you're not going to be profitable with a customer for a very, very long period of time. So it's almost like an existential necessity to provide exceptional customer service to ensure that they not only stay and renew, but hopefully grow over time. Like the business model depends on it. It's not a nice to have. Hundred percent, and I actually think that it really—I like what you said. It—it it really makes it. I—I I would argue, I'm biased, but it just makes the companies better because they're thinking about all the stakeholders instead of this transactional model of how to close the deal. It's just—it's it, better for everyone, better for the customer, better for the employees, better for the you know the I think long term better for shareholders as we're seeing. So, for sure. I mean, your dad was in the business, and Sonus twenty years old. We remember the era before cloud. It was like. People bought a bunch of stuff. Totally. And especially the enterprise, they would buy a big old set of stuff that they bought because somebody gave them a good deal because they bought a lot. They got a bigger discount, so they bought a bunch. Whether or not any of that ever got implemented exactly, or used successfully was like a complete afterthought. That's exactly right. And then the revenue was unpredictable because you have these spikes and things like that, right? Versus this cloud world where it's a long, it's like a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. But it's a marathon that you can survive and, and thrive in. But it sense all the right behavior. All yeah. the right behavior. And I love it. I love being in the modality of like, we're in it with our customers. We are going to make no money. Yeah. Unless the customer successfully deploys this thing. And it's I, beautiful. I love that you guys, it's, you guys Asada, have been in this from the beginning of the cloud because you were with these big companies helping them launch the cloud. So I think you've seen it just yeah. as much as I have. So so the need of the platform is it's clear. But tell us about the original genesis. Like, what did you build uh, the platform to do that yeah. people couldn't do very well in like spreadsheets? Totally. Yeah. I mean, if you looked at it, like, there's we've solved many, many problems over the years, and we're a pretty ambitious product team. The first problem we tried to solve was exactly what you said, which is if you wanted to understand um, how customer is doing, um, is this customer likely to renew with us? Are they happy? Are they getting value? 
you know, a lot of companies that would be very subjective. You know, you talk to the salesperson, the CSM, the you know, other people. And, and the reality is that company had all this digital data. They could be having a more objective view. You know, you could be looking at how they're using the product. You could be looking at, are they coming to our webinars and events? Because that's usually a good sign. You could look at like, did we did the person we sell to change jobs recently? Because that could be a, a risk area, right? You could look at, are they paying their bills on time? And so the first thing we did was create this concept of a customer health score. Very similar to you have a health score. You have a score for like a lead, the quality of a lead, or you might have a, a score to measure, you know, the, the, you might have measurements about like the quality of your product. How do you measure the quality of your customer relationships and your customer base, right? So that was the first thing we did. Then we said, okay, well, how do we use that score plus a lot of tools and automation to help a CSM who has a bunch of customers prioritize the right actions with the right customers at the right time? And so we end up building functionality that's very parallel to what Salesforce and other CRMs are for the sales team, but for the CSM team. So it helps you recommend which customers to reach out to, gives you something called playbooks to tell you the right step to take with each customer, you know, if you lost your champion or if they had a, an outage or whatever. And then it'll actually automate a lot of those steps, like automate the email to send to the customer, automate the preparation of a deck for a QBR, things like that. And then we expand and said, well, what about all those customers where you can't put a CSM because they're too small? So we introduced the concept of digital customer success, like automated communications to your customers, your smaller ones. And then we added the concept of in-product customer success. So you can actually build it into the product. So when you log in, it's kind of personalized to you, helping you use the product and get, mm-hmm. you know, guide you to the right features. The idea is basically build customer success into the entire journey for all your customers. No, it has to be part of the DNA. It has to be part of the core of any SaaS strategy. Like it just doesn't work if it's an afterthought. Totally. You know? And what's been eye-opening for us as we learned, I think, along with the market, along with Gainside over the last decade plus, is like also the type of people that make great CSMs. Yes. It's, it's, it's a very different type of job. Like we thought, well, is it, a, like, is it an account manager? Right. Is it a seller? Is it, what, what is a customer success person? And then we, we had a lot of false starts with like these ambitious goals about hybrid roles. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, if you've gone through that yourself, um, everyone goes through this journey of like defining it and redefining it as you evolve. And I think there are different paradigms. We call them all customer success, but there's multiple paradigms. Actually, I was just on right right before this on a video with with our one of our client CEOs who was asking me this exact same question. And, and there's a lot of paradigms, but I'll just say there's a couple that kind of jump out that are that are uh, common. You know, and, and, and in general, in general, the CSM has to have some value add that they're really bringing to the customer. They can't just be a nice person setting up meetings, right? Yeah. And so, one paradigm is that. They are the product expert. They can connect the customer's outcomes and goals with how to do it in the product, right? And they have to know the product in depth. You'll see that a lot, for example, in security companies where the CSMs tend to be really deep on the product, right? Uh, Splunk is one of our customers. Their CSMs are pretty technical. That's an example. Then you've got a second, second kind of example is, no, the CSM has walked in the shoes of the customer before. So, for example, you're selling HR software and your CSMs have actually been HR professionals. So they can kind of translate all this tech stuff to their environment, right? A third example is the CSM is a consultant. They're really good at understanding that each client's needs and mapping the solution to their problems. Maybe they came out of a McKinsey, Bain, BCG, Accenture, Deloitte, et cetera. And then the fourth kind of model is the CSM is more of a commercial account manager with some 
CS skills, kind of a hybrid like you talked about. Some people do that. I think that works in very transactional businesses where the product's very simple and the, the, the relationships are smaller. Um, but typically you'll find people with kind of one of those paradigms and then they're paired up uh, in some cases with a great salesperson or account manager right. who's doing the commercial side of things, right? Yeah. Some people try to smash it all together and that'll work in a very transactional SMB oriented business or a very simple product. But in a more enterprise type model, it's it's rare that that works. You can do it all together. I, I, we figured that uh, for our business and for our customers, at least, and for our people, like a quota carrying seller is just a different person. Totally. Like, they're just built differently. And a customer success person is also a completely different person. And yeah. things about that job that super excite them and that's what they're passionate about. And generally, those two types of personalities don't mix. And nor should I think the customer experience be confused. Like when they're yeah. talking to a CSM, in my view, it should be like, this person's not, they don't have a quota, you know, they're not trying to close me right now. Like it is a safe zone. I can be, I can tell them whatever. And their main job is to make sure that I'm happy. Right. And yeah. if I have a need, I can express this need to them. Then they, to your point, hand it off. Yeah, and, someone else to talk to and by the way, things will change over time. You know, uh, as people are launching the program, I think everything you said makes sense. Over time, as your business gets mature, you may give the CSM some goals and have some more specific targets. Sure. And, you know, and sure. as people get more mature, they, they evolve. But I think if you're starting, I think exactly, Tony, what you said is right. Like giving them some level of focus on, okay, make the customer successful, get them to adopt, get them to get value. That's the clear goal. And then the salesperson has a commercial relationship, and that's a great way to start. And I think the goals for, I think they absolutely should have goals, but, and they can be around churn and yep. renewal rates and adoption, rates, yeah. adoption, adoption's key. And like yep. NPS, like customer you know, exactly. satisfaction is key. Uh, but like you, you know, a quota carrying seller, it's just different. <laughs> it's you know, one of the ways I like to think about it so that if you're a CEO or your founder listening, you can rationalize it. It's not that the CSM isn't going to drive revenue. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They're going to drive a lot of revenue, but yes. it's a time horizon thing, right? So quota carrying seller is usually focused very much on what's the revenue I'm going to drive today. And the customer can see that. And that's okay. I love salespeople, but it's very clear. You know, if you're aligned on this time horizon, great. But if you're not, salesperson's not going to focus that much. CSM is kind of the long game for sales, right? It's oh, like, sure. I'm investing now and that's going to likely increase your retention and expansion, you know, six months from now, nine months from now. Like I love, you know, in the, in the world of the kind of public cloud infrastructure that you play in a lot, you know, they're investing that time now to help get designed into architecture and things like that. And then that might turn into a ton of revenue six months from now. So they're like the greatest yeah. salesperson in the world, but they're not doing it in a transactional way. They're thinking about oh, it yeah. in a longer term. No, I mean, we tend to resource customers even more after the deal. Yeah. Right? The deal is right. like day one. There's a whole set of activities around customer success, client partner, enterprise support, technical account management, totally on the product. And of course, they drive revenue. And actually, they drive most of the revenue, like real revenue, revenue they get to recognize, right? Uh, but I, I think early days mixing it up is confusing. And I think we've seen a, a lot of success. And I think a lot of the methodology has been driven, obviously, by things that you have published and talked about, which actually leads me to the book. I mean, uh, April 2020, this is like pretty recent. Yeah, it just came out. Yeah, per perfect timing. People have a lot of time on their hands so they can read a book. So, yeah. <laughs> I've been reading quite a bit. I got to put that on my list. But me too. Tell me about that. Who's, who's your, 
Who's your co-author? So our, I wrote this with my uh, former COO, Allison Pickens, who's like a longtime employee of the company. She helped basically launch Gainsight. And so she's with us for about six and a half years. She just stepped down uh, just a couple months ago. And we basically made this her last project. She and I wrote this together. And what we did was we said, look, we've learned a lot in the last seven and a half years of Gainsight. And actually, the questions like what you just talked about, you know, should a CSM have a quota? Is it the same thing as an account manager? Should it report into sales? And so we said, let's write a book with three core objectives. Objective number one is get those best practices out of my head and out of thousands of one-off calls and into an actual book. So it's a lot of best practices. Number two, recognize that customer success isn't just a function. It's not just a CSM whose job is to make customers successful and everyone else does their normal job. It's actually re-architecting the whole company, right? And around customer success. And so we share a chapter about how does marketing change in this world? How does sales change? Mm. How does professional services change? How does support change? Product development. So that's the second thing is how do you change everything in your company? And then number three is, although we have a lot of examples between you and me about tech companies doing this, you have Google and Microsoft and, and Salesforce and lots of others. Um, we think that the real opportunities, every business as they go through digital transformation needs to adopt this mm. mindset. Because when companies go through digital transformation, they're basically saying, I want to be a software company. And if yes. you want to be a software company, customer success is key. So we share examples of medical device manufacturers, you know, industrial equipment companies, financial services companies, all that have adopted this idea of customer success. That's actually super interesting. Now that I think about it, probably actually more important than ever in a crisis or in a downturn. That's exactly right. But it should really be built into the core, like. One 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 place that my mind goes to is like the car buying experience. And, you know, you can argue like Tesla's really changed the buying experience. Yeah. But what if they treated that like it was a subscription instead? Oh, yeah. They, I mean, 100% as the world moves to more subscription-based business models, it moves from this transactional sales model to this like evergreen sales model. You're constantly selling your customers. Like you, you yeah. and I are constantly having to sell our customers and not sell by trying to sell them, yeah. but sell by delivering value. And I think that is exactly the, the future of all business. And what it, what'll change when that happens is just like when I went from the on-premise world to the cloud world, I was like, oh my gosh, everything changes. Anytime somebody moves to a subscription model, they change the whole way they think about their customers. And so we think over time, it'll affect everyone. And, and by the way, there's a nuance here too, which you, you sit in the middle of, which is you've got subscription and then you've got consumption. And um, they're both kind of subsets of kind of recurring revenue, meaning revenue that comes over time. And a consumption pushes the envelope even further because you totally. only pay for what you use. If you're not using any totally. compute in GCP, you're not paying anything, right? And so um, consumption is like the most extreme version of customer success in my opinion. Totally, totally. I mean, it was so much simpler in the live office and G Suite only days totally. when it was like, how many employees? Seats times right. seats, yeah, yeah. seats times whatever you know the the price, and that was your that was your revenue potential, and that was also like what you were measuring as far as adoption and you know growth or retention or any of those things. But man, consumption, you know, we said definitely an epicenter of what's going on with GCP and you know other public clouds uh, as vendors and partners are experiencing the same thing, which is like the ratios are all over the map, Nick. You oh. have no idea. Uh, going in, like a company might have thirty employees, but they could be consuming ten to ten million dollars a year. Totally right. Like well, it, the it, ratios are all messed up. And you can see it, by the way, in the investment. I mean, you you work closely, I know, with Google, and like just seeing, and we, you know, we spend time with them in like 
they hired uh, John Jester to run all the customers. Yes. Carlos yes. underneath him and super talented, very experienced people. And now they built up these you know big teams. And it seems like you know these companies as they move to consumption, they realize customer success is the heart of revenue. It's not like an afterthought. Yes. Be revenue because if we don't get people to use this stuff, there's no revenue, right? And I think they all get that. No, and and by the way, it's like not only do they get that, but actually that's just sort of uh, accounting uh, law and yeah. rule. Like you say, yeah. it's like it's like oh, as you're Google, like I only get to recognize the revenue that's being right. consumed. Like exactly. this ten year thing that I signed, like. Uh, without John Jester, I'm not, not going to see that. Totally. And I can't report exactly. to the street. Yeah, again, more incentive alignment. Um, that's why we love the paradigm. And uh, no, it's really interesting that you wrote it with the CFO, right? It's sort of like the CFO's perspective. It really is. Yeah. That's the CFOs get it. I think they really do get it once they once they make this transition to the new model, they get it right away. Yeah, no, that's 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 really wonderful. And I think, again, I'm so pro customer success because I think it's so great for customers. Yes. And I think companies who do it well um, in, in our space or the vendor side, they're just going to win. And it's just like, it's one of those paradigm shifts that's so pro customer. It's well, just it's like, interesting because I've, I've known you for a decade and like you've always, yeah. kind of, I think like kind of philosophically been very customer centric in your business. And I could, you know, from, from before the cloud. And I think now it's just like, the cloud really forces everyone to do it, um, including, by the way, I think the world that you live in of the kind of integrators and the resellers and all of, yeah. they all have to go do it too, not just the Googles yeah. and Microsofts and Salesforces. And then, but it also gives you the opportunity to do it because now you have data, you've got insights, you've got um, customers that can kind of deploy in bite-sized chunks. It's not just these big contracts. That's right. That's and right. so you have both the, the requirement to do it the motive to do it and you have the opportunity to do it at the same time. So, you know what, just like uh live office was influential in your thinking around this topic back, back when for me, it was, uh, and look, look just like you probably say, Gainside did not invade customer success. I'd right. probably say that SADA systems did not invent managed services. Yeah. Right. But in 2002, this whole break fix model of it service providers to me seemed ludicrous. Like, right. What do you mean? I have to wait for my customer to suffer a catastrophic event for me to go, uh, you know, in their worst moment, fix their problem. Hopefully I can, and then present a massive bill. Like, what is that? So like, totally. we started wrapping it up into what we viewed initially as like an insurance plan, you know, oh, you have like 10 computers. So therefore for, you know, $500 a month, I'll, pre I'll prevent you from going down. I'll do preventative maintenance and now it's a subscription and it's fixed and that's all you ever pay. And then so I think I learned the, the, the sort of uh, drivers around retention back in the managed services days. And it wasn't really until we started getting into, you know, Google and Microsoft, like subscription sales and consumption that it all came full circle and said, actually, this is the same thing, but in like super hyperdrive. But I've always loved recurring revenue. I've always loved business models that um, are win-win-win, yeah. customer, vendor, partner, partner, the whole, you know, all you, the line. And you said it so well, the, you know, not more inside baseball, but I definitely think the in managed service model was kind of the grandfather of this concept. 
and not everyone really adopted it. Not not every vet, not every partner made the transition that you did, but the ones yeah. that did had much better businesses. And then cloud kind of turbocharges that. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's that's where we cut our teeth on the business model. We love like recurring revenue is like the best business model because it provides a reinvestment capital if you do it well to continue right. to grow. But again, just it's all about the customers. Like pick a model that makes customers win and you'll yeah. just win as a side effect of the customer winning. Like just focus on them. Um, and so I want to pivot a little bit because you never know when, you know, uh, people in the ecosystem, it's sort of a small world running into each other again. I think we looked up sort of at end of Q2 and, and I was like looking at our wins and I was like, oh, wow, Gainsight just became a customer. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, and so then I pinged you then, and uh, I think that was like, that was like, oh my God, I haven't recorded Nick yet. We should get this done. But obviously, I'm going to ask you about, you know, why Google, why GCP for Gainsight. And by the way, Gainsight represents this category we call digital natives, platform mm. companies, that the, the software is the company in yeah, a lot of ways, right? Totally. So like companies like Gainsight choosing to run on GCP is sort of like, you know, a tremendous endorsement because you're betting yeah. a lot of the platform's performance and availability and resiliency and scalability, all those things. That is such a part of the core company. You're you're betting part of that at least on on GCP. So, what kind of drove that decision? Well, I think it's a classic example of how things in the new world aren't driven top down. They're driven bottoms up, um, which you probably know about. So we actually bought a company that is uh, originally called Apptrinsic. And now we call it Gainsight PX product experience, which is basically uh, letting you do analytics around how your SaaS products are being used. And then also putting in kind of guides and messages in your products so that when a user logs in, they can be kind of guided to use new features or onboarded better and things like that. And so we bought this company because we had a lot of need in our client base and we integrated in. And this company had been, you know, super modern, totally Kubernetes based, and basically was, you know, chosen GCP a couple of years ago. And it was like, wow, that's awesome. And, it, and it's going great. And so, you know, obviously we have, we have big infrastructure, lots of products over time. And so, you know, multiple things that we have, but seeing kind of the, the, the simplicity and the kind of scalability uh, with GCP and obviously managed now by your team, um, we think there's a huge opportunity there, and I'm sure we'll be doing more over time. But it was totally not a CEO. Let's look at the strategic <laughs> landscape. That's not how things. I don't think that's how things work anymore. It's no. like developers who know way more about this than than I ever would. Uh, yeah. As I as I told you earlier, I'm not, I I was a CS major in college, and then that's where it all ended. So um, yeah. the, the developers who know the best, and you know they they build really great infrastructure, and you know technology wins out, right? Which is what yeah. happened. Yes. Uh, Wendy Pfeiffer, who sits on our board now, oh, yeah. mechanics, reminds us Great. all the time. She's like, I've never had the board come to me and say, you must run GCP or you must run yeah. Azure. Like, they're not like, they don't come and say, say I want you to deploy Chromebooks. Like, the no. board's never going to tell you that. <laughs> That's the old school, right? That's the old world. No, it's not going to happen. So it's like the, the bottoms up is interesting because, again, Gainsight's been around for many years now seven seven plus years yeah right so it's not like companies that started seven years ago even though we're considered digital natives probably didn't start on gcp no because like they were not in the game right it's aws right. others but um 
what's interesting you said that the acquisition was of a two-year-old company what we're seeing more and more in our base and i think man high was a great example of like companies started in the sort of last two three years if they're engineering driven yeah gcp is like the choice of the engineers it's yeah becoming I'm more I'm, and more clear i'm definitely seeing you know in general like more startups looking at more things and and specifically gcp jumping out and obviously we all know like five, seven years ago, there, there was probably ma- legitimately like one choice out there. Right. Yeah. And, um, and now there really are multiple. And I think, yeah, people are being very thoughtful about how they do things or doing, as I'm sure you do with your clients, sometimes multi-cloud architectures and whatever too. Definitely. Right. And Definitely. yeah, that's, it's exciting. I mean, as a, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's, it's great for the ecosystem that there are multiple great choices out there that have different pros and cons to them. And you know, Google's doing a great job. Yeah. Totally. No, it's it's great validation. Again, just like uh, customer success, just like managed services, um, those are things that are good for customers, but so is choice. We love that our customers have choice. And actually, Google thinks they have the best cloud, but they don't mind giving choice. I found, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't create Anthos if they weren't confident in the sort of multi-cloud, hybrid cloud story, right? Like Anthos is supposed to drive that in a large enterprise. Uh, kind of unlike the other vendors. So I think it's it has a posture like, yeah, it is a multi-cloud world, but long-term, we think we have some advantages. And I think uh, your choice to expand based on the decisions of your acquisition are, are, are a great testament to that. Um, so moving forward, parting words, it's a crazy challenging time um, for all of us, but I think we're all blessed to be in this amazing space that we work in, which I think you know, in a lot of ways, of course, some of our customers is challenging times for them as well. But those who have transitioned themselves, transformed themselves to be serving uh, their customers in in sort of a digital fashion, we're seeing kind of actually seeing an increase in demand for what they do. And I know it's hard to to read tea leaves, but what do you think the next you know couple of years will be about for uh, for Gainsight and for you as a CEO? What do you yeah. see? I mean, I think that, so, you know, tactically, obviously we continue this mission of getting more companies to believe in customer success, having it driven across different industries, and then also, you know, making it a company-wide thing, like, like kind of the customer success economy talks about. So all of that is, I think, going to continue. I think if you look further out, the question I ask myself is, if you think five years from now, will customers have more or less power than they do now? More, for sure. And if you think five years from now, Will there be more or less data so you can be proactive with your customers? More. more. There's no doubt. And those two trends underlying are what drive customer success. So customer success will absolutely be bigger. And what will happen in the future is we'll still have sales and marketing. Those are super hard jobs and really important. But today, if like the relative importance is like sales and marketing is this important, if for the people listening, I'm drawing like, like 90% and then like CS is like 10% <laughs> over time, that's going to balance out. You know, I, I could definitely yeah. see a world where, you know, three, four years from now, CS is equally important to sales, you know? And I think that's, that, and that'll show up in budget and headcount and technology spending and everything else. Um, and I think it's not because of any theoretical concept. It's just the customers have the power, right? And Google yeah. as an example is kind of doing that, you know, show, kind of betting with their, their wallets and their feet by, building out a big CS team, right? I think that's going to happen more and more. I can't think of a better soundbite to end on because even though you're biased, I also know that to be completely true. (laughs) 
Thanks, man. I, um, I agree with you. Here's, here's to making it happen for everyone else. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for coming on and great to connect with you again. Sometimes, you know, this podcast is just a great excuse to get together with a it friend is. for an hour. It's been fun hanging out, Tony. Thank you so much. Really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks so much for coming on. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.